With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Tom Clarkson. And I'm Alex Jakes. It's episode two of F1 Nation. And before we start, we want to wish you all well, because it's tough times at the moment, and we hope the next 45 minutes will provide the escapism you need. This week, F1 Nation is going to celebrate a birthday, because Formula One turns 70 on the 13th of May, and we've got a packed show paying homage to this wonderful sport. We've even got a couple of drivers joining us who, between them, have won seven world titles. That's 10% of the total. So we hope you enjoy what we've got coming up and please remember to subscribe and review the show because it helps other fans to find the podcast. So AJ, what's caught your eye this week? Well, two things for me, Tom. I'm going to go for George Russell winding up Alex Alban, like best mates do, constantly taking him out no matter what they're racing has provided quite a lot of entertainment. George, you are so bad. Let me go, George. George. Can we focus on the guys in front? George! What is... Wait, I'll forget it. George! And the Inter-Lagos eSports race. I mean, the virtual Grand Prix, it was astonishing. If that was a real race with passing and repassing for the lead, I mean, it felt like about 30 overtakes for the lead. That would be an all-time great Grand Prix. And about halfway through, I was thinking, I may have got a little bit too excited too early on. We've still got about, we've still got about 20 minutes to go with this. Your trousers were on fire. Trousers on fire. And also, you said at the top, 45 minutes. Just a fair warning to you and everyone else. If it goes on longer than 45 minutes, I'm just going to dub in a different time to your line. All right, we'll, <laughs> okay. ju- we'll, we'll have that corrected in the edit. Yeah, 55. Yeah, 55. 52. What's caught your eye this week, Tom? Well, I enjoyed chatting to Danny Kafiat last weekend. We were, of course, doing it remotely. He was in Monaco. I was in the UK. Wonderful description of Helmut Marco and the pressure that Marco used to put on him from race to race when he was in the junior formulas. If you don't buck your ideas up, we will not support you after the next race. That was when he was in the junior formula. So extraordinary stuff. It was also fun talking to him about Nürburgring Nordschleifer because I asked him if he'd learned anything new during lockdown. And he said he'd learned on his simulator to drive the Nordschleifer. He'd been there once before with his father uh, in, in real life, but that was years ago. And now he says he can do three to four laps of the hundred and what is it, 175 corner Nordschleifer within half a second of each other. So he's completely nailed it. I think we need to see him sim racing now, don't we? There we are. Who says F1 drivers aren't productive under lockdown? Right. Here's what's coming up in today's pack show. Rosanna Tennant catches up with four-time champion Alain Prost. We talk to Hall of Fame journalist David Tremaine about the most influential people in F1 history. And Sir Jackie Stewart takes us through a lifetime spent in motor racing. On a 70th anniversary podcast, 
Who better to talk to than a man who's really been there and done it? He won 27 Grand Prix, three world titles, and then walked away at the end of 1973, but has remained involved ever since. I'm delighted to say that on the line now, we have Sir Jackie Stewart. Jackie, are you there? I'm here, loud and clear. Good. And Jackie, how are you, first of all, in these difficult times? I'm in good shape, apart from a right foot, which I've had a major operation carried out. Uh, I I blame it on my racing days because of in those days, a Formula One driver did sports cars, GT cars, Indy cars, Formula Two cars, God knows how many different other cars, Le Mans cars, etc. And I've damaged over these years my right foot. And I'm paying the price now, I can tell you. I don't know what the price of the operation was, but the price of the pain, I want a discount. Uh, (laughs) Poor you, Jackie. No more heel and towing for a while. Jackie, we're celebrating 70 years of Formula One this week, and you've been involved in six of F1's seven decades, unbelievably. How similar is the sport today compared to the one that you first came into contact with in the 60s? Better. It's wonderful today. I love it. Uh, I get to go to a lot of Grand Prix because I'm with Rolex and with Heineken. The professionalism of it, the whole thing is so spectacular. Having said that, the earlier days were much more intimate. The paddock was open to the public. They could pay a wee bit extra and be right next to Graham Hill and Jim Clark and sitting in their cars, getting them adjusted in the paddock, in the back end of the pits. And even the pits themselves were invaded from time to time. The other great thing about it was the camaraderie. In my day, the Jim Clarks and the Graham Hills and and the Francois Sebers and all the others, we traveled together. We holidayed together. We were a community together. The wives were doing the timekeeping, the lap charting. Helen still got that same stopwatch that she could take 26 cars every lap to her lap charting. The the wives and the girlfriends, sometimes both, (laughs) were, were on the pit wall. So it was the same but different. Taking a broad view of that, Jackie, when do you think that disappeared from Formula One? When when death disappeared. (laughs) Injuries are one thing, death is another. And when you get up close and personal, I mean, uh, Helen counted 57 people who died during our period together as she was stop watching and lap charting and I was driving. It was a different world, but it was exactly the same. And are the fundamentals of a good car and a good driver, is it the same today as it was back then? I think it's exactly the same. I don't think there's any difference from Lewis Hamilton to the days of Senna and before that, the Jim Clarks and the Fangios. And no doubt the same as the Nuvolaris and the Caracciolas. The same animals existed. And what about the circuits then, Jackie? They've changed a lot, haven't they? What do you think was the most challenging track you raced on? The most challenging racetrack in the whole world, the whole damn world, no matter what formula you could think of, would have been driving a Formula One car around the Nürburgring. 187 corners per lap. It just uh, it just was the greatest challenge. 
having said that, it was hideously dangerous and should never have been allowed. If you hadn't won at the Nürburgring, there was something missing from your CV. And the tracks, of course, in those days were hideously dangerous in my day, at the beginning of my career. And even at the end of my career, which was 1973, compared with what it is today, the current Grand Prix driver today would not recognize what we were racing on in in those many years ago races. And it was wrong. I mean, we are in a period today where racing car drivers are probably safer than, than tennis or cricket players because of our runoff areas, because of our deformable structures, because of the cockpit being a survival cell. And that's all wonderful progress. And, and we've, uh, you know, we've come through very dangerous and sometimes death being close to us all to a day where it just is miles different. Jackie, I want to ask you two things about the safety. I was reading your quotes about dealing with the death of Jock and Rint back at Monza. And I was struck that your account mirrored exactly what I'd been told by an F2 driver in Belgium after the death of Antoine Hubert last year. They said there were lots of tears and then they were told there was a restart, possible restart, and they were straight back into the focus, straight back into the racing driver mode. Tell us about the driver's mental core that we only really hear about in extreme moments, but it must always be there. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's almost an embarrassing reality that death can be suffered and then somehow or other the lights go out and you're driving at the limit of your best abilities. In my particular case, when Jochen died, and he was a very, very good friend, I was there by Jochen. I am absolutely certain, as God is my witness, that he died right there. And then it was the worst thing I've ever been involved in. And about 45 minutes later, Ken Tyrrell says the fix the barriers, Jackie, we're going to go back out. And I'll never forget getting backing in to the car, and it was a march, and it wasn't very competitive at that time. And I make no apologies. I was in tears when I got into the car. I looked at the barriers were renewed where Jochen had crashed, and my second and third laps were the fastest laps I've ever done at that time at Monza and put me into second on the grid and I drove back in and again I tried to get out of the car and I was in tears and a a great friend of mine who's passed away John Lindsay gave me a a bottle of coke and I smashed the cola bottle onto the side of the concrete pit wall but that was what Formula One was like. Thank goodness the cars and the tracks um, got a lot safer very quickly and you had a lot uh, of involvement in that, Jackie. But do you think as things got safer, driving standards headed south a little bit? Well, I mean, there are more first corner accidents today than there were in our day because the cars were more fragile, the cockpits weren't so robust, uh, and people take liberties today that we could never have afforded and never have done. And we would have been heavily penalised in those days had we done that. Today, people do take liberties in a fashion we couldn't have seen before. I mean, the risks they take because they know it's safer today. I mean, I think the worst example probably was with 
Lewis and Nico Rosberg in Spain, when on the start of the race, they collided with each other and part of it on the grass still trying to drive it. You know, that liberty could not exist in those days. And if somebody behaved badly, the GPDA at the very next race had that person come in in front of everybody and give them such a bollocking and threat that they should never do anything of that nature again. It was a much more severe penalty for everybody. I remember you taking a little bit of exception with Ayrton Senna's driving oh, yeah. when you had that fantastic question to him and you got a answer out of him that has been repeated again and again and again. <laughs> if you totaled up all of those great champions, the number of times they had made contact with other drivers, that you in the last 36 months or 48 months have been in contact with more other cars and drivers than they might have done in total. I find amazing for you to make such a question, Stuart, because you are very experienced mm, and you know right. a lot about racing. And um, you should know that by being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And by being a racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. Do you think it had to be someone of your calibre, Jackie, to ask that? Do you think that if it had come from a journalist, he would have just upped and walked out? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. <laughs> uh, he did walk out. <laughs> he did in a, in a positive way. And he also said, I'll never speak to you again. You know, he called me Stuart uh, when I came out with it. I must have looked at it 30 times, said categorically he'd done it intentionally to win the world championship, which is the worst, I suppose, the worst thing I could have said to him. By the way, refused to do the interview to begin with. And then was told he had to do it. And he said, well, I'm not doing it with Stuart. <laughs> you know? But nobody else was willing to say it, I suppose, because if it were you, you might never have been able to get an interview with him again. The journalists weren't asking the question. They all believed that, I think, was the case. 95 or 7% of them believed what I said. But nobody else had. And he got so angry. And then he tore the thing away you didn't see all of that the, the mic away and everything of that kind and nearly tripped over some of the other stuff in his anger and I'll never speak to you again he said that he didn't live with because I think it was it was the year he died he phoned me up in the hotel and asked if I would be prepared to come round to his hotel to have a conversation about what he could do to try and get safety up to a, another higher level. And I, of course, went. From that point on, I think we spoke every week at one time or another, mostly when he at that time was in Portugal. And then he saw that because of what I had done to safety and Formula One particularly, he thought, what should I be doing? How should I do it, Jackie? And that's why he got so close to Sid Watkins. I said, you've got to have somebody outside yourself because, like me, you'll be abused by what you're about to start doing because you'll be called a chicken and you'll be called a whole lot of other things. I was given two life threats at the time when I closed all the racetracks, and it would have been even richer if Senna had done it, if you know what I mean, in a bigger audience, and a bigger television, a bigger media than there was in my day. But you did admire Senna though, Jackie, didn't you? Oh, yes. I, I, I liked him as a man yeah. uh, very much. I thought he overdrove. 
you know, when you're in the pit lane, you can see things in a different way. And I think if you've been a racing driver, you look at things in a different way. I'm sure Martin does, and I'm sure certainly that Damon does. And I think anybody who's been a, a successful Grand Prix driver has a different way of seeing people. And I used to watch everybody when they came in after a quick lap in qualifying, because qualifying was even more difficult in those days, you know, at, at the time of Senna. And when he came in, his eyes, his pupils were so enlarged. He was, it was amazing. He was absolutely drawn to his absolute limits. Who was the best driver you raced against? No question, Jim Clark was the best driver I ever raced against. He was smooth, he was clean. He drove in a manner that didn't have Lotus's breakdown or have mechanical failures. Jim Clark was so smooth and gentle with the car. He was my idol with regards to being, at the same time, he was the man. I was the understudy in a big way. And I think Fangio, because of how he behaved, because the way he drove, he didn't do the Mille Milia like Sterling Moss did, because he thought that was wrong. But he never had an accident, he never had a situation, he didn't have mechanical failures. He never drove a car in a way that would induce a failure mechanically, as many other drivers did. And he also chose who were the best teams to go to at the right time. You know, he would jump from Ferrari to Maserati to Mercedes-Benz to go to uh, another Ferrari, uh, etc. I think he was the greatest driver of all time, but I think Jimmy uh, was, for me, the, certainly the best driver I ever raced against. And I would hold him in that category right through to today. I still think he would be Fangio first and Jim Clark second. Now, one of my favorite races was the European Grand Prix of 1999. And I imagine it's one of your favorite races as well, Jackie, because it was your team's one victory in just your third year, the last year you were competing in Formula One. How were the nerves that day? Because you had a handful of races left at that point. It was then or it wasn't going to happen? You know, even when I was racing, I never thought I was the man that was going to win. So I was very closed up with regards to anticipation, even then. But of course, by the second two laps to go or something like that, I was beginning to get quite nervous. And with one lap to go, I was getting very nervous because having, you know, one as a Grand Prix driver and then to, to win with Paul, my son, as a Grand Prix constructor, was a fantastic feeling, a fantastic feeling. And I was amazed. I mean, uh, Pasquale came running along and said, you've got to come to the podium. And I had never thought of that. Uh, you know, I was the, the team principal and I was to receive the trophy. And I, God, I was taken aback. But it was an amazing success of two cars because we were first and third. It was a strange way to get that win, wasn't it? Because you'd had terrible unreliability with Johnny, with Rubens, he'd led the race in Brazil. Uh, he'd taken pole in France. There were so many competitive races for your team that season, but the Nürburgring on paper just shouldn't have been one. You've got to take what you get. And in and, 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 and Monaco, we finished second to Michael Schumacher in only our fifth Grand Prix because Rubens Barrichello drove it so well in the rain. We actually got into the car and left very soon afterwards. And what was the name of the team principal at Mercedes-Benz in those days? 
Norbert Howe. Norbert called us to come and celebrate with us. We were in the car halfway to the airport. You've left the circuit. We've got to celebrate. And we said, no, no, we're going to catch the plane and go home because we had a private plane at that time. You know, we were pretty cool about it, but deep down we were thrilled to bits, if you could imagine. So, Jackie, when you look back on your career, did you win 27 races or 28 races? 27 no, as a driver, know. obviously, but... but you yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, of course, I never thought about that. Yeah, 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 28, <laughs> you're right. Oh, that's a new, that's a new claim I'm going to make. <laughs> to do it in both directions was quite unusual, I think. I don't think it's happened too many times, if ever. Wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Keep well, look after that right foot. We'll see you very soon. The great Sir Jackie Stewart there. Tom, he really liked that bit where you pointed out that he had, in fact, won 28 Grand Prix rather than 27. I changed the record books there. Uh, but worth reflecting on on that fantastic European Grand Prix in 1999. That was just a momentous weekend. To this day, it remains one of the highlights of my career because I was actually shadowing Jackie that weekend uh, for a story I was doing and it meant flying to and from the race with him on that private jet that he referred to Um, I attended all the sponsor functions with him that weekend I had dinner with him every night Uh, I remember sitting next to Phil Collins who suddenly started using all the cutlery and and was using it as a drum kit in the middle of dinner Um, (laughs) and then that journey back um, to Luton Airport on the Sunday night of the race as Jackie says we left remarkably quickly um he came back from the podium his shirt was drenched in champagne he did a few interviews got changed and we were out on the plane home um the champagne bottles uh were opened on the way home uh it was a very jolly journey home I, I do remember that and it was a very emotional one and then Sir Jackie's wife Helen met us on the tarmac at Luton Airport um, with a huge checkered flag. And so as we opened the door of the plane and went down onto the tarmac, there she was and lots of tears and emotion. And it re- you could see it really meant so much. And actually, the last thing he said to me that weekend was, "I uh, that was a bit of a scoop for you, wasn't it? And ever since then, in an informal way, he's um, referred to me as scoop. That's what he calls me. <laughs> That's amazing. That is fantastic. So from one classic to another, let's tell you what's coming up this weekend across all F1 channels. On Saturday, the F1 Rewind race is the USA Grand Prix from 2018. It doesn't seem too long ago, but this really was a race that went to the final lap. And then on Sunday, there's the F2 Esports, the Esports Pro Drivers in Action, and the F1 Virtual Grand Prix from Spain. Let's hear Alex and Charles' reaction to having to race again round the circuit to Barcelona, Catalonia. Barcelona, next one. (laughs) Guys, we're excited too. Those wise old folks at F1 have launched a contest to find the most influential person in the championship's history. Now, this has three upshots. One, everyone can vote right now with the winner announced on Wednesday. Two, it's created a huge amount of arguing and bickering, which is always fun. And three, it gives us a chance to debate this subject with Hall of Fame F1 journalist David Tremaine, who joins us now. David, how are you? Good. I'm very good, actually. This must be the biggest gap between races you've had in many a year. Yeah, I would say since 1987. 
And have you been coping with it? Have you found it weird? Coping very it? well, thanks. <laughs> but I'm feeling very industrious and virtuous because I've done loads of work that I've kind of fallen behind on in books and everything else. So, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Right, let's get to the exam question then. The F1.com list of the most influential people in the championship's history. You're not happy, first and foremost, with one of the omissions from the driver's column. Tell us who and tell us why. It's quite extraordinary that somebody of the calibre of Jim Clark isn't on the list when Jack Brabham is, for example. I mean, I think Jimmy tends to get forgotten, and unfairly so. DT, put some flesh on the bones then for people who don't understand the magnitude of Jim Clark. Why should he be on the list? He was the best guy of the 60s. Jimmy was the standard. I mean, he was far and away the best guy out there. He was the, I hate to put it this way, because people have short memories, but he was the centre of his generation but without having to push anyone off the track to win. <laughs> and one of the best guys we've ever seen. The best. Oh. the book, Jim Clark, the best of the best. So this is always such a subjective thing. And this is the, this is the top sort of stuff that comes out in an anniversary special. Was it his innate driving talent? Was it the standards he set? Was it the best that we'd seen until that point? What puts him above all the other greats that get mentioned in this sort of question? One of the things was his versatility. To be fair, I mean, he could win in anything. So could Sterling, so could Mario, guys like that. Apart from winning 25 Grand Prix, he went to Indianapolis, won it twice, won touring cars. He could drive sports cars as quick as anyone else. I mean, he just had this versatility, but also it was his character. And I mean, he was this humble guy, never forgot his friends. He never heard anyone say a bad word about Jim Clark. And it was this standard of not just driving excellence that he said, but standards as a, as a man as well, in my opinion. I don't think there's been anyone quite of the same calibre as him. So if you're taking Jim Clark from the drivers, the other categories are game changers, we've got innovators, we've got team bosses. Who are you taking from each of the brackets? This is not how it works on the website, by the way, but I'm just interested in your take of who you would take from those different categories. Who else should be in this conversation? One of the guys I think has done the most um, and the most influential person in Formula One would be Bernie. I think you'd very seriously have to consider him, whether you like him or not, and I like him a lot, you have to think of what he achieved and what he made Formula One. The Formula One we have today is what Bernie made it. Now, there's good points, there's bad points, but it is an international, it's a global sport, and that's because of him. Whether it would have become one eventually is debatable. One attribute that you think he has and had that set him apart from everyone else? Mouse. Bernie could be difficult, but he knew what he wanted, and if you shook hands with him on something, that was it. And he had this ability to see far into the future and to see ways of getting to the future that nobody else had at the time. But if you look what a mess Formula One was, you know, you got start money for some people, you got less for others. You didn't have to do all the races. You know, people would cherry pick which ones they went to or which ones they could afford to. He made it a much bigger structure. And of course, he bought it television. It would have taken years, decades longer to get to this. And do you think if he hadn't kept quite so much of the revenue himself, how different the sport might be today? <laughs> yes, I think yeah. it would be different. Nice and diplomatic. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> On the safety side, for example, I don't think you should ever forget what Jackie Stewart, who actually I would say is the most influential driver, in my opinion, because 
not only have his ability, and he was so like Clark in so many ways, but also in the safety side. And on that note, I would also be saying Prof Watkins and John Barnard, because in terms of influence, innovation, and everything else, Barnard was one of the, arguably the greatest innovator with the carbon fiber tub. You look at what those three, what a lasting legacy they've left. So, DT, John Barnard or Colin Chapman? Barnard. Just think about one thing. Barnard and Ron Dennis, when they made the carbon fibre car, weren't even in Formula One. That would be like two guys right now who aren't in Formula One who (laughs) build a revolutionary car that not only is super stiff and super fast because of that, but has this safety spin-off that nobody really predicted that we're still feeling today. The funny thing about Chapman is he innovated, but not necessarily didn't. If you look at a lot of the stuff, he had monocoque chassis, wings, ground effect, active suspension, stuff like that, things that we'd already seen elsewhere. And if you look at Prof Watkins, Barnard and Stewart, how many lives did they save? Tom, do you think there's anyone that David hasn't highlighted who should be highlighted there? Enzo Ferrari, DT. I'm surprised you didn't mention him. But the most historic team in Formula One. I always feel Ferrari gives Formula One just uh, a little bit of magic. Formula One is a lovely bottle of wine, but it becomes just a little bit more special when you've got Ferrari in there, just giving it a little bit more flavour. Their longevity, just that little bit of magic. Why does every driver want to drive for Ferrari? Why did Barnard go to... Um, as a matter of experience, I know that just because you're... You're old and you've been around a long time. All right, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I do feel cynical about Ferrari. I, it's funny. I used to love Ferrari. I'm not such a fan of Ferrari now because it's when at all costs. How about Michael Schumacher, David? Where does he fit in all of this? It's very easy to be cynical about Michael as well. This is turning into cynical corner, isn't it? This is why to be it. Ayrton Senna wasn't in Jim Clark's class overall. It's some of the things Ayrton used to do. And we used to argue about it. He and Michael legitimised the professional foul mm. race again. That's something I really can't countenance, to be honest. I mean, there's no denying that Michael won seven championships. and You don't do that by lucking into anything. And Michael and Ferrari, look at the number of races that he was finishing you know, before he had any breakdowns. That was a fantastic era of achievement. And there's no mm. taking that away from anyone. And that was the symbiosis of... Ross, Rory, Michael, De Montezemolo, all of that group at Ferrari that just came together to create this fantastic structure. Great part of, of motorsport history, isn't it? And DT, does Lewis Hamilton sit above or below Schumacher in your driver hierarchy? Oh, uh, way above. But it's really interesting. I mean, my, my little sort of, in my own little world, it's always been Jimmy, Gilles and Ayrton as my top three been like that for a long time. As you probably gather, I'm quite passionate and talk from the heart rather than the head a lot of the time, which I'm willing to accept is why Jimmy and Gilles is one and two. That's part of my reason. And I love Gilles' passion and everything else. And I think Gilles was out and without the dirty tactics and all the cerebration about everything. But I think Lewis would be in my top three, definitely. Considerably above Michael, because I just think he conducts himself in a way that I prefer just because I prefer it doesn't mean it's a big deal but that I like it when you get people who behave properly and that's what I kept saying to Ed why do you have to drive like this you're you're so talented why do you have to behave like that 
I asked uh, you both to pick out a race that has stayed with you from the 70 years. But this is more from a personal point of view, a race where you were present in the paddock and that has stood out as maybe a remarkable one for various different reasons. We'll go in chronological order, which means that we start with you, Tom. What have you picked? I mean, so many great races to pick from, but the race that really sticks in my mind actually is Indianapolis 2005 and really it's for all the wrong reasons but I just the magnitude of it and watching it all unfold for those who can't remember Ralph Schumacher during Friday practice had a a big crash through turn 13 which was the banked corner on the oval at the end of the lap Michelin couldn't guarantee that their tyres were going to be safe beyond 10 laps thereafter and so They just didn't know what to do. Bernie didn't know what to do. He was on the ground. It required all of the teams to come up with a solution to put a decent race on. And they couldn't do it. And it was fundamentally Ferrari who refused because they wanted to put a chicane in at the final corner to reduce the loads. And we ended up with this ridiculous situation of a six-car race with Schumacher and Barrichello. Quite a good race, actually, between the two of them. And was it Tiago Monteiro in the Jordan finishing on the podium and stuff like that? So that was quite fun. But it was just up until that point, I thought Bernie was the godfather and could make anything happen in Formula One. And he couldn't make this happen. And that left a huge imprint on me. Do you remember that, DT, that race? They could have saved that race. And I believe political strings of all sorts were being pulled so that Michelin was embarrassed. And it sounded the death knell for F1 at Indianapolis, really, didn't it? I mean, we had two more races, I think, 2-6, 2-7. But... How embarrassing was it to go to America, which has never really sort of been in love with Formula 1? It might have been in the 60s at Watkins Glen, but to let that happen, I think, was just ridiculous. And then we went to France, didn't we? I remember Ron Dennis making a speech from the Michelin motorhome about everything and how we didn't know what we were doing. And I I had a massive argument with him afterwards. Just assumed we were too stupid to know why they didn't race. We had a cup of tea later and sort of laughed about it. Tiago Montero being on the podium. I always liked the fact he celebrated that. I always liked the fact he jumped into the arms of his mechanics despite the whole situation. Podium's a podium. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't his fault that nobody else was there. At the complete other end of the scale then, David, what was your choice for the race that stayed with you? Mine's Brazil 2008. So yeah, yeah, it's a weepy one and everything else, but that's the kind of thing I love. And I will start by saying Felipe Massa is probably the only Formula One driver in recent history that are actually regarded as a mate. We used to work together at Sauber and I desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to see Lewis win. But I thought, well, if he can't win, good for Felipe. And I watched the family and Titania, his dad, and all that. And he'd driven a brilliant race. It was just so sad. World champion for like 38 seconds. The thing that I really take away from that, do you remember Felipe sort of his hand across his heart and then giving his heart to everyone? You think, man, you've got charisma to be able to do that. Yeah. That's the most majestic thing I've ever seen in sport. The way that Felipe was in defeat because he was defeated but in my opinion he wasn't really that was real high theater wasn't it that's what i'm talking about you know earlier on about that sort of sportsmanship that transcends everything well i completely agree with david that the way massa handled himself after the race was i actually thought extraordinary the way he handled himself with the media afterwards and it was and it was sincere he was happy for lewis 
and he was just so generous and I think he made a lot of friends that day. That actually is my abiding memory of that race weekend, bizarrely, is how Massa handled himself afterwards almost more than what Lewis had to say afterwards. I can't really remember what Lewis said immediately after the race. Do you know that feeling as well that I did, Tom? At the time, I thought, that's as close as you're going to get. That was your big chance. And I, and I think Massa realised that as well, which was made it all the more extraordinary. That's the sort of race that you're almost, you almost mourn it the next day. You sort of Monday morning, you're like, we might have epic finales in the future of Formula One, but we're not going to have anything quite like that ever again. I felt a little bit like that. Not that I don't think he'll get podiums, but I did feel really sad last year for Alex Albon. When there was second place, that would have been a fantastic result for him. It's all right. He won the esports race there the other day. That's basically the same thing. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we'll go for we'll go for my memory. It's Spain 2016. I'm only commentating on the GP3 and GP2 races at this point. And I didn't used to commentate on Formula One those days. So I used to go round the circuit and watch. So I went down to turn seven, and you've got all those fans down at turn seven. The Mercedes crash into each other at turn four. And everyone in front of me as a unit gets to their feet. It was like a riot on that hill. Daniel Ricciardo's in the lead after that point. He gets to us first. And then I sort of just meandered around the circuit. And then it became clear that the strategy was working out differently for a certain Max Verstappen, who had just been promoted in pretty controversial circumstances from Toro Rosso to Red Bull. And then you just sensed a really curious feeling from the crowd oh, I definitely want to see the youngest winner in Formula 1 history. I want to be at that race. I want to experience it. So that's one thing. So I come back to the paddock. But what was extraordinary is in this occasionally cynical, hard-nosed sport, everyone else seemed to reflect that. Everyone else seemed to be just absolutely wide-eyed with anticipation. And everyone I ran into was thinking... Is he actually going to do this? Is he going to hold off Kimi Raikkonen? And it's very strange to be in an environment for one year and you see everyone behave a certain way. And then that race, just for a few minutes, melts it all away. And when he crossed the line to win, it's just extraordinary. I haven't really seen the F1 paddock ever like that before or after. It just shows you what people are like underneath, really, doesn't it? Everyone has this veneer of, yeah, yeah. But yeah, when you get something that really makes your heart pump. AJ, we need to try and find the Dutch TV commentary for the end of that race. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Actually, no, no, we couldn't run it. It would just be beep, 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 beep. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of focus on Red Bull that day. And I was so impressed, obviously, by Max Verstappen, but also... Carlos Sainz and Danny Kafir, because Sainz had missed out on on getting the, the nod from the big team. And yet he went on and finished, I think it was fifth. And then Danny Kafir, who'd just been dropped by the big team, came home in 10th place in the points in the Toro Rosso. So there were just so many mega performances within that single race. And all it took was take the two Mercedes out and, and then the world opens up. It was a, It was a funny thing. Thanks to David Tremaine. If you want to join the debate, use the hashtag F1Nation. Right, on with the show. You're listening to F1Nation with Tom Clarkson, Alex Jakes. And now we welcome F1 TV host and pit reporter, Rosanna Tennant. Rosanna, how are you? I'm really well, thank you, Alex. Hi, TC. Hi, everyone. Are you both all right? Both very well. We've, well, 
I'm very well. I assume Tom still is at this stage of the episode. <laughs> still hanging on in there, AJ. We've just been talking about the races that have stayed with us, Rosanna, the ones that mean something personally or, you know, when you say pick a race from the 70 or pick a race that you've attended, what are you going to go for? Do you have anything like that? Do you have a race that, that sticks out? I think whenever someone asks me this, I always go back to my first ever Formula One race, which was Melbourne. I will never forget using my pass to go through the turnstiles. And for anyone who's been lucky enough to go into the paddock, there's this rather amazing sound that accompanies your entrance. Like, da, da, da. And suddenly you're into, it sounds very ominous, doesn't it? Suddenly you're into this magical, world and it was just the most incredible experience suddenly you're walking through and drivers are right there and you are in Formula One and it is it was one of my most favorite moments that's one I always think back to so more of a personal one for me Um, and of course it was a very strange weekend it didn't follow a normal Formula One race weekend format because we had to delay qualifying it was very wet Saturday and so I didn't even get a taste of a proper Formula One weekend Australia 2013 my little first entree uh, into the Formula One world Who was the first driver you interviewed, Rosanna? I think my first interview, I think it was Jensen. I think that was when I went to the McLaren launch. And again, it was a very surreal moment, suddenly being right there in front of the drivers. It was, yeah, Checo and Jensen. So um, those are my first two. Well, from your first two to your latest interview, who are you going to be speaking to today, Rosanna? Well, I have managed to get hold of, in the nicest possible way, uh, Alain Prost. So uh, a phenomenal uh, character of Formula One and someone I'm really looking forward to having a chat to. Well, what a fantastic guest you have to interview. A phenomenal champion, universally respected. So let's ruin the credibility of this interview by playing this jingle. This is Challenge Rosanna. So for those of you new to the show, every week we set Rosanna a challenge to complete. Now this week we've been given an F1 Wheel of Fortune. Let's spin the F1 Wheel of Fortune. And it stopped. Ah, ah, Rosanna, this week's challenge is to make your interviewee, Mr. Alain Prost, say the word professor. Oh, okay. Look. That seems like it might be doable, I think, would you say? I think that I think that's very doable. Okay, I think I can do this. I think I, I can know, some I can... reference to homeschooling, away you go. Right, leave it with me guys. I will see what I can do. Alan Prost, welcome to F1 Nation. Hello, Rosanna. All good? Very well, thank you. How are you finding lockdown? What have you been up to? Filling your time with some positive and fun things? A little bit different, like everybody, but uh, spending time with only one part of the family because uh, we are all divided. You know, we have three childs and the two of them with uh, their their child, they are at home and uh, they don't want to see anybody else. So, in fact, for about one month and a half, I'm with my daughter, my wife, and uh, very little, uh, little people. But I spend a lot of time... Uh, like everybody again, you know, on the phone, video conference. It's a part of work, but a lot of fun for the sport. I mean, I can still uh, walk uh, one hour, one hour and a half per day, plus bike, bicycle or mountain bike. And I do, I, I read much more than uh, I used to read uh, in a normal time. And uh, I try to look some uh, 
different aspect you know I, I am uh, I am half French and half Armenian so I try to I, I got some time more time than uh, usual you know trying to see what was the my country from my ancestors the, in, in the past and uh, all the story about the empire um, before the Armenian genocide and uh, all this part I'm very happy that I, I could do it in a normal way. Otherwise, I always have an excuse or I feel busy or I don't want to spend time. So that's the only difference. Part of that, you know, I, I need to see some, some friends, some people, some work, and we can't do it. And, uh, it's not very nice, you know. I, it's a little bit too long. Absolutely. It's affording us some time to do things we've put off. Have you found any recent drivers in your family history? Have you uncovered any exciting facts about yourself? No, not at all. I mean, that was a part of my uh, story first. You know, I mean, nobody in my uh, family and uh, you close or far that they were not interested by any kind of sport. So that's very, uh, my story is very strong from the beginning to the end. Well, it's a fabulous story. And that brings me perfectly on to Formula One's 70th anniversary. Of course, the sport's about to celebrate that anniversary. And you've been part of the sport for well over half of that time. As you reflect and look back on your career, are there particular moments that stand out for you? Um, what's, what's your sort of favourite one that you could take away? Very difficult to take uh, one one particular moment, you know. Obviously, if you ask uh, people, they ask you what championship uh, I won for, what is the best. I mean, obviously, 86 was the best, or uh, which races, uh, Mexico in 1990 with the Ferrari, 86 in Adelaide with McLaren. But um, it's more the overall the overall uh, package, you know. It's 70 years of Formula One, but uh, I started in 1980. It's 40 years plus a few other <laughs> years in uh, Formula Renault, Formula 3 and go-karts. So 50 years in motor racing. So it's a big part. And if you look at, uh, you can answer this kind of question when you are 30 years old or 50, when I am in 65, you, you have different uh, answers. For me, I always look at the global global situation. I'm very lucky that in these 70 years, I mean, 40 years for me, that I was able to see the evolution of Formula One and with the good good times, bad times. And, but it's all, uh, you know, when looking at accidents or people or friends dying, but it's part of history, you know, and uh, technology, we're talking a lot about technology. I've seen, I was very lucky that uh, I've seen the first, the carbon monocoque and then the ground effect cars and turbo engines and all kind of technology. I was very curious. So I was always fascinated by that. And I, in fact, uh, I think that I was even more fascinated by the, the overall package of the teamwork, the technology, the ambience, than only uh, winning. You know, winning is only the, the top of the, if you have done the job right, you know. And uh, that is why when I was uh, winning the race, I mean, a lot of people told me, you know, why you were not happy? You know, I was very happy inside, but I was more happy when I was going back into the team. And then I was thinking already about the next one. So very lucky also talking about these 40 years to be here today to talk to you about that because uh, I've been part also of the history of the Formula One way. It was very, very dangerous. I was very uh, lucky. You know, uh, two days ago, some somebody sent me photos of my car, McLaren car in 1980 in Watkins Glen. I had a suspension failure. I went over under the guardrails and uh, so I could not rest. I've been almost two weeks in hospital saying that nobody knows that because you did not know social media at the time, you know. 
but I was very, very lucky. So sometimes things in life can, can go away. The overall package is... But I'm very proud having participated to a big part of the history of, uh, of Formula One in general. It's not finished. Absolutely. It's far from finished. And it's fabulous that we get to talk to you uh, on F1 Nation. You've also raised some incredible drivers. Is there one that sticks in your memory? Uh, they were all very different. I mean, uh, they were... If I can um, describe the, the, the generation... When I started in Formula One, 1980, we had uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, Claire Gazzoni, Yoidi Schechter, Gilles Villeneuve, all the French guys like uh, Jacques Lafitte, uh, De Payet, uh, Jabouille. You can see Carlos Rotman. They were big, big characters, you know, very big characters. But we were also almost like a family, like friends. I remember those time in, uh, in uh, Buenos Aires when I arrived for my one rest. I mean, they were all like, uh, I was the new one, the very little guy. And they all came like this and trying to give some advice. We were all in the same hotel. It was a very different ambience. So when you were with a teammate, for me, the first teammate was John Watson. He, he was like a dad for me. I really uh, loved this year with, with, with John because uh, he helped me a lot. You know, he was really uh, covering me and it was tough for him, very tough. The team was not very, was very strong against uh, John. I started to learn. I said, "Oh, it's better to be in a good in a good position in a team than being a number two. You know, I started to understand it was would, would be very very different. But the relation between the teammates at the time, and then when it became in in uh, for for example like today, is completely different. You know, but I was very lucky to have um, a character like like John, like like Ayrton for sure, because he was completely different to anybody else. But can you believe Nikki, KK? Nigel, all these guys, you know, they're all different, but they, they all had a, a strong, strong personality that we could see the personality at the time because we could say more, more or less what we wanted to, you know, because the, uh, today is a little bit more difficult with the constructors, the, 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 the ambience, the, the society does not accept too much that. But yeah, I mean, uh, they, they were all, uh, all different and they all brought me not, maybe not all. Ninety <laughs> percent, they brought me a lot, you know, in terms of experience and knowledge of the personalities. Uh, it's like a family, you know. Uh, when you're uh, doing one complete year with a teammate, you know, you know more or less everything. Sometimes it's very nice moments. Like uh, I had fantastic years with uh, Nikki, with Stefan, with Keke, with John. As I said, the first year, you know, also with Demon, with a good ambience. Uh, some years a little bit more more difficult. So when you have a good ambience with your teammate and the Formula One is uh, easy, it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know, and you don't arrive at the rest track um, thinking of what I'm going to find or what I should do. It's, it's, uh, it's a little bit, uh, little bit different. You've listed off some incredible names there, some personalities, as you said, and characters, but you also had uh, a big personality and, and a character in Formula One. Just remind everyone of your nickname in Formula One. Yeah, I mean, Professor is, uh, <laughs> in fact, in fact, the nickname came at one race. You know, I remember we were using Michelin tires and we had the three type of tires, which I, I still recommend Formula One and FIA for many, many, many years to do the same. You know, and, and when, we were to, when we were talking about new regulation, I would love to see that again. If that means we had three type of tires, 05, 07, and 010. I remember very well, qualifying uh, soft and hard. And that the first time I, I tried to, you know, I was really, really motivated and passionate to, to, to take care of my car and for the setup of the car. 
and I was experimenting a few different things. And um, I, I wanted to try uh, the hard tires on the left and soft tires on the right, you know, different, different uh, position. And um, I remember Pierre de Basquiat from Michelin said, no, it's not going to work, you can't do that, and it's not, not good, whatever. And I, I tested the car, and uh, I wanted to do it. I said, no, I take the responsibility, I want to do it. I think that's the best, I can set up the car the way I want, and I know that at the end of the race, I'm going to perform better. And then I won the race. And then at the end of the race, he said, you're the professor, you know? And it came, came like this, that the first years, I did not like very much the nickname because it looks a little bit too much. You know, then I'm not pretentious, you know, I'm, I'm more, I'm a simple, simple guy, you know. But I must say that that was in 83, I think, 82, 83, I don't remember, I remember exactly. But almost 40 years later, the nickname is still there. So I'm very proud about that because it's more sympathetic today. Yeah. Alain, you would have seen me get rather excited when you said professor just then. But unbeknownst to you, Tom, TC and Alex Jake set me a challenge to get you to say the word professor during our interview. And there we go. I, you've, you've completed my challenge for me. So thank you so much. Uh, okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> easy. It was easy. Oh, it, maybe it was too easy. Let's talk now about the plans for the 2020 season. Of course, we're in this very funny state at the moment with Formula One on their own shutdown, but also the rest of the world in lockdown. Do you think then this shorter season as well, combined with all of the, the bigger picture issues, could mean that for the midfield battle, it could be an exciting time for both your drivers and the team? We still don't know in the top three who is going to be the best. Uh, we have seen strange things in, in Barcelona, but uh, it's going to be very, very open also. Maybe, maybe a small surprise, especially in Austria, I think. I mean, not a surprise in Austria, because I think the Red Bull uh, should, be, uh, should be very competitive there. We don't know how many races we are going to have. For us, in the, when we said the midfield, we were optimistic on a, in a way. Just think that we don't know the, uh, the question mark is the racing point were very competitive in Barcelona and we are a bit worried about, about that. As you know, we can't develop the car, we can't change the car too much. So we're going to see and uh, at, at the moment for midfield and top teams is a little question mark. Yeah. An exciting question mark. We're looking forward to some answers when we do finally go racing. Alain Prost, thank you so much for joining us on F1 Nation and thank you for helping me complete Challenge Rosanna. Yeah. That's good. I want 50% of the... 50% of, the <laughs> 50% of nothing, unfortunately, Ella, is... <laughs> well, first up, Rosanna, congratulations. You have fulfilled your challenge this week, The Professor. Thank you so much. Although I felt a little bit empty after it, given that Ella said it was very easy. <laughs> well, of course he was The Professor, wasn't he, as, as he explained, but... Great interview, though. Wow. What, a, what an amazing guy. He was on great form, wasn't he? And very ready to chat to us. There was one other thing, actually, I picked up on, which was him saying, I'm Armenian. Now, I, in the past, I've heard him dismiss the French authorities, saying that he doesn't feel French, he feels international. But I've never actually heard him refer to being Armenian. Of course, his mother uh, was Armenian. But I thought that was an interesting digression from Alan. 
Absolutely. Going and delving into the history books and finding out where you've come from, that's certainly something I haven't been doing during lockdown, but perhaps that's something we could all do, have a little look back to our roots. Yeah, slightly unconventional challenge, Rosanna, next week. Your entire family history. <laughs> Which everyone would be thrilled to listen to, that's a, I'm sure. That's a, solid, that's a solid 10 minutes of the pod. That's fine. <laughs> That almost brings us to a close for F1 Nation this week. But before we go, a quick dive into the virtual mailbag. And thank you, everybody who got in touch. We particularly like this message from Steve Jackson uh, in New Zealand, who said, I really, really enjoyed the first F1 Nation episode. Thank you for the quality entertainment and banter whilst we wait for the world to restart. And the tribute at the end genuinely brought a couple of tears. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve, for getting in touch. Really like the message. Keep your messages, comments, questions or challenges for Rosanna coming in to the hashtag F1 Nation. That's just about all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Sir Jackie Stewart, David Tremaine, Alan Prost, Rosanna Tennant and you for listening. Join us again for F1 Nation next week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.